Welcome to the Tall Poppies podcast. To find out more about our guests or the content of the program, including information about the musical excerpts, visit our website at tall-poppies.com. Hello, Brendan O'Shea here with another edition of the Tall Poppies podcast, this time with Brisbane-born composer and violist Brett Dean. I think the most important thing in not only this piece but all of the work I do is that it comes from the role of me as performer. The playing aspect is very profound and very important. I can't really imagine doing one without the other. In just two decades, the musician Brett Dean has risen from being an orchestral violist who once wrote music on the side to one of the world's most celebrated composers. In fact, Brett Dean's music is championed all over the world by orchestras and leading conductors, including Simon Rattle, Andres Nielsen, Simone Young and Daniel Harding. Brett grew up and was educated in Brisbane before moving to Germany in 1984, where he became a member of that prestigious music ensemble, the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. It was in 1988 he began composing, initially working on experimental film and radio projects, but also as an improvising performer. Among his most significant early works are his clarinet concerto, which he wrote in 1995, and the work Carlo, which features strings, sampler and tape and was inspired by the music of the Italian Renaissance composer Carlo Gesualdo. Brett remained with the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra for 15 years, but returned to Australia in the year 2000 to concentrate on his growing compositional activities. He was also artistic director of the Australian National Academy of Music in Melbourne until 2010. Needless to say, Brett's accolades are numerous. In 2009, he won the Gravemeyer Award for music composition for his violin concerto, which is called The Lost Art of Letter Writing. And that work was premiered by none other than that great German violinist, Frank Peter Zimmermann. And in 2016, the Australia Council awarded Brett the Don Banks Music Award, acknowledging his sustained and significant contribution to Australia's musical scene. Brett's first opera was called Bliss, based on a book of the same name by the Australian writer Peter Carey. That was premiered in 2010 by Opera Australia. Then in 2017, his second opera, Hamlet was premiered much acclaim at the Glyndebourne Festival.
This other aspect of the language, you know, and it's it's kind of entfremdung. It's kind of it's strangeness to our ears nowadays, and yet it's familiarity because we know, particularly in the case of Hamlet, it's the the, the one with the most famous quotes, etc. It just seemed a wonderful and serendipitous mix for me to just sort of take off with it. And so there were there were days here in this very studio that you know I've felt and it sounds a bit like a cliche but I felt there were there were times where I felt it was writing itself because of the rhythm and the language and the color and the shape of the the, the language itself the words themselves Well, with many compositional commissions in the pipeline, Brett still continues to perform as a violist. Incidentally, he's also written a concerto for that instrument, and he's also a busy conductor. However, in the midst of this remarkably full career, I did manage to catch up with Brett Dean one winter morning in his Berlin studio. Brett Dean, first of all, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Yeah, my pleasure. <laughs> Been away for so many years, since 1984. When you think of Australia, what do you think of? I think of warmth, mangoes, cricket and possibility. Bowen mangoes by any chance? <laughs> yeah, Kens- Kensington Prides they're called nowadays, but yeah. <laughs> Only Kensington Prides. And when do you know you're an Australian? I, I know I'm Australian when I hear cricket on the radio. That, that really sort of chimes in in a way that... that nothing else does <laughs> and i'd like to go back to actually 84 now i'm wondering how it came about that you decided on berlin you know somebody with your abilities as a viola player that made it into the berlin philharmonic orchestra you could have gone to london you could have gone to new york was it carry on that perhaps uh, brought you here not carry on specifically but it was certainly something to do with the the, the style of music making and and the energy of music making here, but it was specifically uh, a viola player called Wolfram Christ, who was teaching here at the Hochschule, in fact, just across the road from here in Hardenbergstrasse. And it's kind of ironic that I'm now in a studio that's only a few feet away from where I first turned up and had to enrol and all of that. But yeah, it was through meeting Wolfram Christ in Australia at the time he was married to an Australian. And that was the connection, really. And so I played for him in a couple of master classes in Sydney. This is back in probably 82. And at that time, he already said, look, you know, if you make it to Berlin, I'd keep a place in my class for you. I mean, obviously, I then had to go through the normal ritual of acceptance and audition and so on. But uh, I came with a fairly good chance then of, of being in his class and uh, he in turn was at, uh, at that time the newly appointed principal viola of the Berlin Philharmonic and it's through my studies with Wolfram that I ended up playing in that orchestra. Sorry, I think if I remember rightly Wolfram was married to one of the Tanzibudek sisters, right? That's right, yeah. yeah. Okay, yeah. so that was the connection with Australia, that famous Australian oboe player in, in Adelaide of course and he had two daughters who both play here as far as I know, yeah? Yeah. Yershi Tansbudek, Czech-born, a legend of the instrument and, uh, yeah, was then living in in Adelaide. And his two daughters both lived here in Germany at the time. Sandra also still lives here in in Berlin. I guess you obviously were well prepared. You came through, of course, that that Queensland school in many ways, John Kuro, Mm. Elizabeth Morgan, Mm. and that whole sort of Queensland, well, Queensland Youth Orchestra, we know all of this, I mean, you know. Did you feel well prepared professionally when you arrived here? That's a very interesting question. I think in some ways, yes. I have to say what, what I did notice fairly early on was that and, and this was only confirmed more by, by my time in the orchestra, that, that teaching here was at a very high level in some ways. It was very rigorous. Uh, it, it sort of set people up with good techniques. But what it wasn't as good at 
in my opinion, was giving a broad view of music and its possibilities. And so you'd often get um, string players coming to auditions and it was really apparent that they'd prepared and perhaps spent years of their studies preparing a classical concerto and a, and a concerto nach freier Wahl, um, you know, of, of their own choice, and a few orchestral excerpts. And that was, you know, in a sense, there was this feeling that that was learning an instrument in order to just get enough miles, you know, the hard yards of learning what, how to get through an audition. But it wasn't necessarily, in my opinion, the, the kind of um, broad... Uh, knowledge base and and curiosity that I felt very much uh, had come from my time, particularly at the Queensland Con and, as, as you say, with John and Elizabeth Morgan, John Coro. That I felt... I, I must say that the, the Queensland Youth Orchestra experience was an incredible foundation of, of then going into the profession. I, I, absolutely, the Australian Youth Orchestra as well. I didn't really get that feeling I, I, here in Germany. I felt that there were some great instrumentalists and you would also get these, these certain types that were, had that burning curiosity and I, I sort of gravitated towards those players, a few of whom I met in my first gig here in Germany before I played with the orchestra was in the chamber orchestra of the Junge Deutsche Philharmonie, which then eventually became a, a professional full-time orchestra and is now called the Kammerphilharmonie Bremen. And that was sort of a, a gathering point for those players that really wanted to take it further and were interested in the sorts of things I was interested in. Zweite Wiener Schule, you know, the second Viennese school and, the, and, and new music and old music and, you know, just sort of pushing the boundaries beyond learning your classical concerto and your other concerto so that you get a job in a good orchestra. Mm. So I, I do think, yes, I felt in that sense very well prepared. In other ways, I, I had work to do technically, but at the same time I felt always that I'd been well set up right from the start from my studies with Elizabeth Morgan and John Curro, for sure. Of course, the Berlin you landed in in 84 is a very different Berlin to today. Of course, that's stating the obvious, but there is, of course, that, that wall still existed. There was the Hans Eisler Conservatorium on one side of the wall, the UDK, the University of the Arts, on this side. How much contact did you have with the East in those days? Well, my wife Heather and I, I mean, she came here as a visual artist, and so we were at the same Hochschule in different faculties. And she and I actually had the great fortune of getting to know a family on the other side of the wall, again through Australian friends here. Uh, and we met the family of Rosie Starker, who was a prima ballerina of the comic opera ballet. So through that connection, we saw, had a glimpse of East Berlin and East Germany that a lot of West Berliners didn't know about. Uh, we were regular guests at Rosie's place and, you know, the, the sort of traipsing back to Friedrichstrasse and crossing the border just prior to midnight before, you know, all, all pumpkins, <laughs> <laughs> all carriages turned to pumpkins or whatever. That was part of those early uh, years and our early experiences of living in this divided city. So... You know, we really did experience that, and that was incredibly telling. I mean, above all, over on that side, there was just this this incredibly close knit community around around Rosie in particular, and and the arts community especially, but also you know generally people gathered and talked. And any chance in a relatively undangerous way to meet Westerners and to talk with them was incredibly vital to people mm. over there. Otherwise, all they had to go on was you know, Western television, which was also monitored at schools. They would check with kids whether they'd been watching certain Western programs and, and that would then lead to a reprimand for the parents and mm. retraining or God knows what. So, you know, we were very aware of its divided status in a, in a very palpable way and, you know, we were standing in that queue at Friedrich Schasser on many an occasion being sort of, you know, being sort of checked out by these young, often pimply folks, <laughs> politicists and, yeah. and so on. 
Indeed, what an incredible time. What I'm interested, though, in is, of course, going back to that building there and, and, and of course, the Berlin Philharmonic, which is built more or less right on the border of, mm. of East Germany, the eastern mm. part of Berlin, and as a sign, in many ways, to the east about just um, how big and grandiose it can be in the west in some ways. You yeah. landed in there, this, this young fellow from Queensland, and tell us about the audition. Well, I must confess, Carrion wasn't at my ah. audition. And, and by that stage of his career and also due to his sort of failing health, he was, he was not as present by that stage. But, you know, I certainly did meet him and had to play up the front of the section on a few occasions so that he could suss me out and that sort of thing. But, yeah, it was an amazingly, well, a memorable occasion, obviously, um, quite a few years ago now but uh, I had been playing there quite a bit the the few months prior to auditioning so I I don't know whether that was an advantage or not because in a way the the more you know about the place the more you have invested in it and potentially the more nervous you get because of it but I think also I was young enough and full of myself enough to kind of you know ride above that but yeah, I mean, it's an amazing process and one that I've I've spoken about with, you know, Australian orchestral representatives on many occasions because I think it is the way to go that that an entire orchestra is part of the decision-making process, not just a committee from within the orchestra to decide, you know, who your colleagues will be. And so, you know, there, there's <clears throat> not necessarily the entire orchestra there, but there's, you know, a good percentage of the orchestra sitting there. So in a way, I felt that that made it feel more like playing a concert and less like being in an audition panel situation, which can be quite confronting, partly also because, you know, my, my experience of auditions up until that point was they were always in small rooms that never sound much good. And, um, you know, it's kind of daunting because of its proximity whereas here you know you're playing on the stage of the Berlin Philharmonic Hall which sounds great if nothing else it's for those contestants who come along and, and perhaps that's the only three minutes of their lives that they ever play solo on the stage of the Berlin Philharmonic that's a memorable experience in itself so you know it's felt and I tried to think about it more like playing a recital albeit with a particularly you know sort of high level audience well indeed a very high level audience indeed mm. let's let's move along there of course the years in in the, in the 90s with with Carian and then Abado mm. who in an interview with me in the past you've told me was very uh, important period of time for you also in that orchestra mm. but it was already in 88 that you started to compose mm. you were playing in a band and you were improvising and I'm wondering knowing Germany as I know Germany how open you could be about these sort of little other activities of yours within something like the orchestra say oh well, I'm going out to you know I'm getting my tux off this evening and I'm uh, going to go and play in a band and uh, you know <laughs> yeah I mean it was unusual but it was something that that I was quite happy to to talk about with colleagues and on occasion some of them would come along and check out what I was doing and I think Probably, if anything, there was a bit of envy there, certainly on the, on the part of some of the younger colleagues that, you know, friends of mine. And the, a sense of, oh, I wouldn't mind trying a bit of that. And sure enough, there are quite a few players in the orchestra nowadays and perhaps even secretively back then that, that you know, would try their hand at different genres or, you know, closet composers who hadn't yet outed themselves. It was, for me, a really important, you know, sort of vent in a way because... I was loving the experience of being there in some ways and instrumentally and from you know that, that straight classical point of view, it was an amazing experience being there and learning from these great players sitting all around you. And I really did make use of that. I'd, I'd have lessons with more than just Wolfram. I had chamber music lessons with a dear colleague from the viola section who'd been in a quartet for many years himself, Siegbert Überscher. And, you know, took the opportunity to play for people and that's how I met Josh Kortag, the, the Hungarian composer. So, you know, I was, I was loving it in some ways and yet also aware of its rigidity and its conservatism and its sort of straight-lacedness. So the chance to then play in this 
band. I mean, it sort of it seems funny to refer to it as a band. It was it was basically Simon Hunt and myself, Simon Hunt, aka Pauline Pantsdown. I'm sure I've uh, relayed this story to you before too. But he and I started improvising ostensibly. I mean, we'd met because um, his family were good family friends of Heather's family. And so he came to stay with us when he first arrived in Berlin as member of a of a pretty sort of straight down the line pub rock band that were trying their luck in Europe. But um, yeah, he wanted to put together some music as a, as a sort of off Broadway side project that he was doing um, doing music for an experimental film. He wanted some string sounds, and in the course of doing a few days in a studio with Simon, it, it actually ignited this. Um, this, I think, latent desire in myself to, to write music. And so what started as improvising turned into, you know, more formal laying down of, of certain ground rules for an improvisation and, and from there into actually, you know, preparing stuff and, and notating it. And, you know, there was a great degree of curiosity and genuine interest and, as I say, a, a bit of envy, I think, on the part of some of my colleagues. Mm -hmm. and, and when this, this very first project, this, this film, uh, was shown in very low-tech circumstances, I mean, it was an 8 millimeter film on a pretty, you know, sort of rough old projector in a small single-room cinema somewhere in Kreuzberg, and the music was played not you know, it wasn't synchronised, it was just the synchronisation was simply pressing the buttons at the same time of the projector and the and the reel-to-reel -reel machine. I mean, it was this was very rudimentary. Uh, by today's, you know, high-tech garage band standards, it was, it was, you know, pretty ordinary. But a few of my colleagues came along to see it and they were incredibly encouraging. And, you know, it was only then a couple of years after that that I started getting you know, queries about writing pieces for them, the 12 cellos, for example, and so on. So it was a very formative time. And I must say that sense that you hinted at of, you know, taking the tails off and going off to Kreuzberg to play some bizarre gig in, in some of these dives of places that, you know, some of them looked like the war had just ended the, the weekend before. You know, it was just rubble in some of these cellar rooms of of some of these alternate performance venues. It was really fascinating. All the while, of course, something that you also told me last time we, we, we chatted was that what's been very important for you is, is that you've mentioned her a few times, your wife, Heather, mm. the fact that she's a visual artist, the fact that she's all the time confronting problems about creating various things in various ways in a, in a different way to, a, to you know, an interpreter, a musician. And then for you to take this leap and decide to actually to compose possibly had a little bit to do with that as well. You, you and Heather have spent a lot of time looking at galleries and, and of course, her, her exhibitions and all the rest of it. That, that must have had quite an influence on you, I take it. Oh, huge. I mean, I'm sure that without Heather's input and living alongside a creator as opposed to a recreator that, that, you know, I felt very much I was at that stage. You know, without that, I wouldn't have turned to composing. And, and in many ways, there were great similarities anyway in her working process and, and how I saw the composing evolving in myself, particularly in the early time where, together with Simon Hunt, we'd build pieces layer upon layer, which was very, um, very similar to what, what Heather was doing in preparing canvases, putting these underneath layers on first and then you know sort of taking it from there and, and building pieces on on that platform and that was very palpable in um, in making pieces in this way where you sort of do it track by track
So, you know, the, the piece I still refer to as my kind of opus one was a piece that I wrote for five violas and recorded each part myself in, again, pretty low-tech circumstances above a chemist somewhere in, in Newtown on one of our trips back to Australia. And, and Simon was operating the reel-to-reel tape machine. So, I mean, there, there was a very strong connection then to Heather's creativity, for sure. And, um, you know, that's that's been part of our process ever since. And often it's in more recent years we've we've followed similar themes in that I've chosen things like Socrates and Hamlet and so on as a direct reaction to some of the themes that Heather's been working on in cycles of paintings. Incredibly interesting. Let's look at one of the early works, uh, that being Carlo, of course. You've mm. mentioned tapes and sampler and strings. Mm. And uh, what you didn't mention was a Renaissance composer. Mm. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I did mention earlier that, uh, I mean, it's interesting because it was that fascination with all sorts of music that I was talking about that I missed here in some of the musicians I came into contact with in, in the classical world. They were, they were interested in, in that central repertoire that's the core of orchestral music, but they wouldn't know of Carlo Gesualdo, for example, or, you know, or, or newer music either. And I still find that in discussing you know, repertoire, for example, with members of the orchestra, this kind of still quite toxic reaction to playing too much new music, in their opinion, you know, particularly now with somebody as, as open to the world of music as Simon Rattle and doing lots of commissions and so on, which is, you know, the way it it has to be for the art form to survive, but that, that kind of encroaches too much on, on a very, in, in some cases, very narrow worldview of music. But anyway, so I was introduced when I was still in Brisbane to this remarkable sound world of, of Gesualdo. And that piece was in many ways, yes, a very, a very important crossroads for me. It was a project that sort of brought both worlds of mine together. I was commissioned by the Australian Chamber Orchestra, so I was writing ostensibly for a classical string group. Nevertheless, one that also had this very, already then, a very open attitude to older music, new music. Richard Tognetti was, you know, had, had taken on the ACO and burst the boundaries of what it was capable of. And at the same time, it was also a project that I realised with Simon Hunt, um, who ultimately assisted by doing the, the programming of the sampler part and played in the first performance. So it was this kind of meeting of these two worlds and in many ways the point where I realised I've got to take this seriously and, and do it as my main thing. a really important project in all sorts of ways. It also took me back to Australia for the first time for, for a, a major sort of compositional project. And that in itself was also really, really stimulating. I saw Australia with new eyes and in a, in a new light. You know, what Richard and the ACO were doing to music making in, in the country was incredibly exciting, still is. It was a real sort of pivotal moment. If we look at the titles you've given many of your works, I see that they're often a reaction to the world around you. 
sometimes reflective or nostalgic, like your violin concerto called The Lost Art of Letter Writing. Sometimes you have funny names like... 12 Angry Men, which is a piece written for 12 cellos. Then there's also a number of more solemn titles like Three Memorials and Between Moments. The last one, Between Moments, you dedicated to the wonderful cellist Cameron Redgeford, who died tragically in 2003. You and Cameron most likely went back a long way, both from Brisbane, both studied at the conservatorium there, and you both then went on to study in Germany. It must have been an incredibly difficult task to be faced with writing a memorial for a mate. Well, Cameron and I went through not only the conservatorium but also youth orchestra together and, I mean, such a delightful and funny, funny man. And we'd played some chamber music together, not not nearly as much then in retrospect as one would have liked, but... um, Then he also went through and had quite a long association with the ACO in various capacities, both as cellist and also in an administrative role in the orchestra. And he was just such a a sunny and funny and delightful character and a great cellist, had this sort of twinkle in his eye. I mean, I mentioned Kortag and he was very influential on on my compositional development in the early stages of when I was starting to take it more seriously. And one thing that I was aware very much of Kortag's music, even back then, which is now the best part of 30 years ago, was this awareness of the frequency with which he'd write pieces in honour of people often as memorial pieces for friends who had passed away. And I remember him telling me, you know, the sort of leitmotif for him was jeder Mensch eine Blume, every person is a flower and is special and so on. And indeed I played quite a few pieces of his that that fitted into that mould as well, solo viola pieces, I remember premiering a major string trio piece of his called Signs, Games and Messages. And the message thing was very important for him and it still is. The sense of putting out messages of love, of remembrance and so on. I mean, I I could see that in the context of an already at that stage older composer. You know, Kortag was already then in his 60s, approaching 70 even. And he was already in that, that demographic where friends and loved ones are passing away. The shock of, of Cameron's death and, and the sense of compulsion to capture something of his spirit in sound um, sort of put me in this time of, hang on a minute, I shouldn't be writing memorial pieces already at this stage in, in my life, particularly not of contemporaries of mine. Um, but it just, I was compelled to do it also because it had been uh, an opportunity to write a piece for the Queensland Youth Orchestra for John Kuro. Um, Cameron had been the principal cellist in the QIO at the time that I'd been principal violist. I mean, there were there were all these sort of connections, and it just yeah, it just seemed right to honour him in that way. encounters with Kortak, what sort of a teacher was he? Was he a mentor? Was he somebody who just let you look on as he worked or how was it? Definitely a mentor. Uh, I've never, I don't know that anybody has ever sort of looked on while he works. He's very private in that way. Very wonderful and extraordinary teacher who opens up all sorts of philosophical thoughts and possibilities but also very daunting and and for a non-string player one of the most exacting teachers I've ever played for because he had this uncanny knack of honing in on where weak links might be in one's own playing and one's own sort of interpretation 
both musically and technically, of, of pieces. I remember having a three-hour lesson with him on Schubert's Arpeggioni Sonata. We never got past the first movement. Um, and, in fact, by Cortagian standards, we did actually rather well to get through a sort of 12-minute first movement uh, in, in a three-hour session because I've heard stories of barely getting past the first line in, in quartet sessions, for example. Um, and he, he was full of remarkable insights about, as I say, about oneself and one's own approach to it, but about the music itself. He never, in his own words, never taught composition. And I know for a fact that that was his response when I asked him whether I could have composition lessons. But it, it dawned on me the more time I spent with him that every lesson was a composition lesson. You just had to sort of, you know, recognise it as such. So... Ultimately, then, I did play some of his own pieces for him, including the aforementioned solo pieces, etc. Um, and then also played my own solo, my first solo viola piece, Intimate Decisions, for him. And that was also an experience that, that stayed with me because he, for, for somebody who didn't, quote-unquote, teach composition, uh, he, he absolutely knew exactly what to say and, and how to put it and where I needed to sort of think harder about the decisions I'd made and so on. At the same time, um, he was incredibly encouraging. And this was still early days for me as a composer and he was the first... No, that's not quite true. He was the second full-time composer that I'd encountered at that stage with whom I'd... I'd had the courage to discuss my own music. Who was the first? The first was Mark Anthony Turnage, whom we met through Simon Rattle and so on. And so he was the first person that said to me, kiddo, you've got to take this seriously, you know, which was already kind of, oh, really? Okay, I'd like to. Uh, but I probably felt I needed, I needed that encouragement. Just as I'd needed Simon Hunt in the first place to say, why don't you write a piece next time rather than, you know, as it had been up until then in our duo, our band, um, Simon had sort of put forward, you know, the, the basis of a piece and we kind of improvised around that. But it was Simon saying, next time we get together in Sydney, because he'd moved back to Australia by then, you come with the basis of a piece, which is then was the basis of that, that five viola piece that I mentioned. So... The encouragement from Cortag that he was, you know, not only taking this stuff that I was writing really seriously, but he was quite admiring of some of the choices I'd made too. Um, that was incredibly important as well. So, you know, it was very challenging, but also incredibly rewarding, the, the association with Cortag. This Hungarian school of music, and going off the track a little bit here, but there are all sorts of... I mean, look at Andras Schiff, for example, Vera Rorsche, that, that wonderful vocalist, vocal teacher in, in London, Kortag you've mentioned as well. They, they were trained in a certain way. They've come through a school that's incredibly admirable, isn't it? Yeah, and I think you see that across those old East European Eastern Bloc countries. I mean, look at Magdalena Kozina as well and, and that, that vocal school from ex-Czechoslovakia, and again, you know, our dear friend Rosie in East Berlin and the training that she had had as a, as a ballet dancer, that there's just, you know, no nonsense and you work hard as the first. The first basis is just hard work and working out how you are with that. It's just great for self-discipline above all. I'm sure they, well, they are always incredibly strongly disciplined and, and physically strong people in my, you know, in my experience. I mean, also, you know, Cortag's fought off cancer and is still going at 91, determined to finish this opera he's writing, this, this Samuel Beckett opera. Oh. And, you know, there's just this, this incredible drive and core to how they want to express themselves that, um, you know, I think we can learn a lot from that. Let's get back to some more of your works. 
if we look at an early work from you that was an, another important one was a work for clarinet, mm. one might think that possibly at the back of your mind there would be your brother, Paul, mm. who is, of course, a phenomenal clarinet player. Other musicians have played quite an important role as far as inspiring you to write works for them. Is it, is that, would I be right in assuming that sometimes you've got them in your mind when you're writing the work? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you're talking about Ariel's music, which is actually just over there because I'm conducting it next week in Dublin. Um, yeah, so that's very apropos. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the more you know about an instrumentalist, particularly in the, in the light of a solo piece or a concerto or something like that, the, the more you know about the player, the more, the more detail you can bring into it and the more... Uh, the, the more depth there is in the relationship to the material you're you're using and creating, I think. Um, and so in that in that instance, I remember also sending. So this this will date date us both as well, um, both myself and Paul. So at that stage, I was sending page by page, faxing it through to him in in Brisbane, and he was then recording it onto a cassette tape and sending it back by snail mail. Just seems like, you know, <laughs> just seems like it was last century. Oh, it was, yes. Um, and, I mean, I remember then one, when I sent him uh, the, the first draft of the big cadenza that happens at the end of the, the final movement, he just sent back a single page um, that said, you are an absolute... <laughs> expletive deletive and um as only brothers can can mean it and you know i mean that, that was an incredible my first solo concerto in fact it was my first my first ever orchestral piece so you know talk about learning experiences that was you know as good as it gets and and just hearing these early recordings back then of of him coming to terms with the material i was writing and and working out Okay, what amongst that is stuff that obviously Paul still needs to work out himself, but also what can I learn from? Where, where can I, you know, dig deeper myself? And that's always the, still the ongoing challenge with hearing a piece for the fir very first time. First rehearsals are, are really pivotal and hard work for composers, I find, um, because you've really got to sort out the fact that an orchestra is sight reading, so you've got to take that into account. And so the more you sort of know about what that is like as an orchestral player, the more helpful that is for, for myself as a composer to sort of work out, OK, they'll sort that one out, but here, this passage, I need to work out, you know, what's wrong with that? You know, so those sorts of um, issues are incredibly insightful, formative um, you know, educational. How was it growing up with a sibling that was pursuing the same sort of career? Okay, different instruments, but both of you pursuing similar things in many ways. I mean, first of all, you've mentioned it now. He's the person who came to mind for you to write your first big orchestral mm. piece in that mm. respect. Was there also other difficulties along the way? Oh, well, there were three of us. I mean, right. our older brother, Craig, was no bust. He's He's since actually moved on to other things in in psychology psychiatry and counseling and i mean for me uh, that seems like a very natural step for an oboist to take because <laughs> you know it's a kind of strange instrument <laughs> but then i'm a viola player who am i to talk you have a um, heap of oboists just hitting the their their, their um, ipads at the moment yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah i mean i'm sure all of well, every instrument has its kind of um you know, it's tukun, it's particular traits and, and quirks. We'd egg each other on, I think. You know, uh, I remember Craig started at the con as my older brother. He, we all went through the conservatorium. I mean, talk about a monomaniacal family. And, you know, he'd already been at the con for two years by the time I started there. And he was also very disciplined. I remember him going into the con early you know, well before the first lecture. He'd sometimes be in there at 7 or 7.30 and, and get quite a bit of practice done before things, official things started at 9 or 9.30. And 
So I slotted into that and we'd go in together and that was, you know, that was great. That set me off absolutely on the right foot and footing and, and what's more, he knew the run of the place. So he kind of made it a lot easier for me. I, by the time I got there, I kind of knew quite a bit about how it was, how, how it was going. And I'd seen productions of operas that he was playing in or, you know, concerts, obviously, as well. And, you know, I remember at the time in his, I think, second year, he was taking part in a production of Britain's Rape of Lucretia. I remember him, you know, sort of saying across the, you know, the dinner table at night, oh, I've got to go in tomorrow for a rape rehearsal, <laughs> things like that, you know. Um, OK, right, if you must. Um, that was incredibly exciting to sort of slot into something that, that, you know, my older brother had already prepared in a way or done the hard yards in some way. And, and then so it seemed almost, you know, Paul was condemned to a life in music by that stage. But no, I mean, it was a, it was a great relationship at home. Um, there was, I think, really a sense of encouragement also coming from our parents who were stalwarts of the Queensland Youth Orchestra and, you know, were there every weekend cleaning the building and making sandwiches and, you know, serving the tea and, and helping with administrative tasks and photocopying and, you know, they were Mr and Mrs QIO for a, quite a few years there. So, I mean, you know, it was just this kind of hive of, of activity like a family industry. I mean... It, you know, there was this sense of, of a family really working together in music um, in various capacities. My dad worked in a, in a power station as a control room operator, but, you know, he was just as much part of the, the musical, the larger musical process. And mum, too, had trained as a musician, but, you know, hadn't had the opportunity to pursue that, but was, you know, a gifted singer and pianist. And so, you know, there was this sense of, you know, just music being at the centre of our lives. And Dad had all, always had this amazing collection of records and it was just music in the house. It was sort of in the, in the water. When you decided then, after all those years in that wonderful ensemble, the Berlin Philharmonic, to actually go back to Australia and decide to focus seriously then, well, full-time on composing, quite a brave decision, but the fact that you went back to Australia was as perhaps a safe area for you to explore a little bit, somewhere you felt good, or was there another reason? Did you need to... It was That's a brave decision to lead the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. Yeah, I think probably the, the sense of upping and moving was an important part of it. Um, it could have been elsewhere, but I think also we... Uh, Two girls at that stage when we moved back home were um, nine and seven years old. And so there was a sense also of, of offering them an opportunity to, to get to know Australia and their, and their extended family while they were still kids. There'd been also the experiences like with this, the ACO that I mentioned mm. that I felt also Australia was quite a different place musically and culturally um, at that stage than the one that I'd, you know, left, uh, albeit, you know, 16 years before that. So um, you know, it had gone through quite a, a maturation process in many ways as I saw it. And then, I mean, we, we moved not only then back to Australia but from Berlin to Noosa, you know, this this basically small country town but but with a kind of sophisticated side to it and this breathtaking natural beauty of course so that was also a, a big part of that somehow there was this just this complete sort of reshuffling of the pack and see what that came up with and indeed you know it was an inspiring place to work for that first period although we then felt after only a few years that actually we were city people and that's what led to the move to Melbourne. But, yeah, I mean, there were pieces that I wrote in that time that are a direct reflection um, and response to moving back to Australia in the first instance but also living in, in a place like Noosa. Tell me about one of those pieces. 
Well, primarily and, and central to that is a piece called Pastoral Symphony that was um, premiered then in Paris by Ensemble Moderne and was very much a response not only to the, the reawakening of being in the natural world and in a, in a way that my first experience, I mean, we, we knew Noosa well as a, as a holiday destination, but living there, of course, was a, was a different thing and on a daily basis walking through that national park and, and having koalas come through the property and, um, you know, hearing the bird life. But also, I have to say then, within those few years, being aware of the, the pressures on, a, on an ecosystem and a community like that, the, the pressure to build that new you know, shortcut road that'll cut five minutes off your journey through the Sunshine Coast and this sense of we've got to turn this into a, a city and the, the constant standoff with the thankfully still fairly robust environmental protection groups that were there and so on. It was, it was, it was profoundly saddening then to drive past what was, you know, a, pristine bit of bushland one week and had been absolutely bulldozed the next. And so, you know, Pastoral Symphony was a response to that. But at the same time, I was wary of not just going down this sort of only a tree-hugging path because obviously urban activity and, and people being together is a positive and, and wonderful thing too. I didn't want it just to sort of be bushland is great and cities are all bad because obviously cities bring with them a, a great sort of uh, dynamic and, and energy. So the piece sort of goes through quite a few struggles in a way, an encroaching sense of urbanisation, but with it that brings a kind of energy as well. So, um, but that, that was, you know, the piece that resulted from all of those thoughts, you know, smashing around my head in those first couple of years back in Australia. Mm, indeed. You, of course, started out as a performer and I remember very clearly the last time we met, you told me that one of the things that you did with your compositions, we sat down and you played through the viola part. Mm. We were talking at that stage, of course, about your opera, your first opera, Bliss, where you'd gone to an Australian, mm. Peter Carey, yeah. and taken his book and turned it into an opera. In the meantime, Hamlet came out. What about, well, let's say it's something you've been working on for a long time, but had its major premiere in 2017. Tell me about the process between that first opera... And then that second opera, because there are all sorts of things for us as listeners that we hear, developments and, and vocal line and all sorts of different things have happened in your music in that process. Mm. Well, I think also the, the biggest difference between the two is language. And I must say, as I mentioned earlier also, that, that the lead for embarking on the Hamlet journey very much came from Heather and uh, another person, in fact, uh, ironically um, enough, somebody, in, a friend of ours in Denmark was the first person that, that uh, proposed the Danish play um, <laughs> as, as the basis of an opera. My first instinct was, oh, that's a bit big. Felt almost like Celeste Patterson. Oh, that's a big one, Goff. Um, yeah, I, my, I was a bit daunted by the thought and I thought, oh, really? Hamlet? Oh, that's big. And Heather's, Heather's response was, oh, that's fantastic. What a great idea. Uh, and she started, you know, getting into reading, rereading the play and, and embarked on her first cycle of Hamlet paintings. And, you know, she in the end did, has done about five different exhibitions of Hamlet-related works, the most recent of which will be actually shown in, in Adelaide at the same time as the opera itself at the festival now in March. Once I then warmed to the idea and thought, hmm, yes, I, I can see this working and could see myself 
within this Shakespearean world, which at first I was kind of, it was all too, too much for me. It was the language itself that then drew me in increasingly and I was you know, sucked into its, its beauty but also its peculiarities, the, the, the bizarre characteristics of iambic pentameter to start with, you know, and the fact that he c keeps screwing around with those rhythms anyway. Um, but it was just already such evocative language that was somehow also other and it's, it's antiquated aspect, you know, which still for many people makes a Shakespeare play a challenge is actually, okay, what are they saying? I, I kind of know this language, but I don't. Once you sort of cross that threshold, uh, it just opens up these possibilities, which I realised were also incredibly musical possibilities. And I mean, it's no secret that Shakespeare's words have been set ever since Shakespeare was first writing in his own lifetime. Uh, and many of the, the plays have songs built into them, of course. But it was realising also that there was something about that that, and also with no disrespect to Peter Carey or Amanda Holden, who wrote this spectacular libretto for Bliss. But it, what, what I needed, I felt, and what I found then in, in going back 400 years, was the otherness of the language gave an abstraction that somehow the directness of, of a Peter Carey novel, for instance, didn't give me. In both cases, I wanted the music to be telling the story, and in many ways then that the orchestra is one of the chief, in, and in some ways at times the chief protagonist in the, in the whole unfolding of the drama. This other aspect of the language, you know, and it's kind of entfremdung, it's kind of, it's strangeness to our ears nowadays, and yet it's familiarity because we know, particularly in the case of Hamlet, it's the, the, the one with the most famous quotes, etc. It just seemed a wonderful and serendipitous mix for me to just sort of take off with it. And so there were, there were days here in this very studio that, you know, I've felt, and it sounds a bit like a cliche, but I felt there were, there were times where I felt it was writing itself because of the rhythm and the language and the colour and the shape of the, the, the language itself, the words themselves. Mm. And so, I mean, that for me is the biggest difference between the two. And I'm too close to, to the process to know what, how different they sound from one another. I'm, I'm aware, I think it's quite apparent that they're written by the same composer. But I do think, yes, that, that um, I mean, I couldn't have written the second one without the experience of the first. And I, you know, and I hope that that might mean there might be a third and a fourth opera as well, because it is a genre that uh, fascinates me endlessly. still sit down with your viola and play through the parts? You know, I, I did get the full viola part of Hamlet. I asked for a copy of it and I did sit down and try to play through some of it, but, oh, it's pretty hard. <laughs> I thought, oh, I'll, I'll leave this to those that are actually getting paid to do this. <laughs> 
Brett Dean, thank you very, very much for coming on the podcast and all the very best with everything. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. Violist, composer and conductor Brett Dean there. Don't forget, if you'd like to find out more about the Tall Poppies series, do drop by our website. You'll find it at tall-poppies.com. Or send us an email. The address is easy. Info at tall-poppies.com. Sound engineer Thanos Karakantas helped put together this episode, which was produced in Berlin and made possible through the support of the Australian Embassy in Germany. It was nice to have you with us today. I'm Brendan O'Shea, and I look forward to welcoming you to our next Tall Poppies podcast very soon. Thank you.